Now, I just wanted to, as we come back to telling the story of God again this week, I wanted to just reiterate a point I made the first week and make sure that everyone remembers that this story that we're telling of the whole story of God, this is the gospel. Like, I find that if I ask people what the gospel is, sometimes people don't have any answer, but then there's kind of the standard answer of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is part of the gospel, but understand the good news the good news that God has sent to us is this whole story. It's everything that he's doing. And I hope this morning you'll, you'll begin to see that even more. That it is everything that God is doing is all, all part of the gospel. And the implication of that is this, this is all part of what we need to embrace. We need to tell each other. We need to tell ourselves on a regular basis is this story of what God's doing. What he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to do. That whole story is something we need to, on a regular basis, be telling ourselves, be telling each other within the body, be telling people on the outside, this is the good news. This is what it is that God's doing. Now, after last week, I was concerned. I heard some, some feedback and was concerned that some of you felt burdened and that you felt that the, the story of the kingship of Jesus and him reigning as king somehow brought a burden for you. And I want you to understand that that is not at all what I intended. And I hope you'll understand this week that if you rightly understand this king, you rightly understand the king that I'm calling you to submit to, you will understand that it doesn't bring a burden, but it actually lifts a burden. That he comes to give grace, he doesn't come to weigh you down. And that many of the things you may have been wrestling with last week, or you're saying, I don't know if I want to let go of that, and you felt burdened or compelled to let go of something, that if that is something that Jesus would call you to let go of, it's because that's the thing that has actually burdened you. And you're actually lying to yourself and thinking that it's the thing that, um, that letting go of it will burden you where it's actually the opposite. And that he, as your good and gracious king, is asking you to let go of something that's actually hurting you. And so as we talk this week, I, I, I hope you will see that this king wants to lift the burden from you. He doesn't want to put a burden on top of you. So we're going to tell the story this week from the perspective of God's grace. That God is a gracious and a kind king. He has been from the creation of the world all the way through to new creation. He's been gracious and kind in all that he's done. And as we do that, I want to just talk a little bit about that phrase, the grace of God. We, in, in the church, in Christianity, we use all kinds of phrases that I don't, I don't think we really know what they mean. Like the glory of God. If I was to ask you, like, what does that really mean? I think you'd wrestle a little bit trying to figure out a good definition of it. The grace of God is another one where sometimes we have like a little standard answer, but it's like, do you really understand kind of at its depth what the grace of God is? So before we move on, I want to um, kind of define a little bit for us. In the Old Testament, the way it's usually described is the word favor. And it's favor in God's eyes or favor in the sight of the Lord. And the picture is one that fits really well with what we talked about last week, where you, you have a king who is a ruler over all things, and he sovereignly chooses to out of his own goodwill, pick one of his subjects and give them something. That he shows them favor. That in, it's, it's a picture of God looking over all of his people and then finding one. That in his sight, he chooses and he says, I'm going to show some special favor to you. As a very um, kind of intimate part of grace is the idea of it not being deserved. That there is no merit, there is no reason that you deserve this thing. That it, and that's tied in with the, God, the, the idea of God being in control, of him being king. Because a king isn't obligated to do anything unless he obligates himself, right? That's what it means to be king. He, he's in complete control, can do whatever he wants. And so if he does something for you, if he gives you something, that implies that he did it of his own will, not because you deserved it. 
Right? He is the one that can do whatever he wants. So whenever he does something, it's always unmerited and undeserved. It's just because he wanted to. And we, I think we have difficulty understanding something being undeserved. We, we're kind of a reward-based people. We, we expect something to be given because of something we did or that we're being rewarded. And grace is the complete opposite of that. It's because of nothing we've done. Grace is always connected with the idea of salvation. And the picture is this, that God looks down on his world and all of it is in rebellion against him. That all of the world has gone into sin and rebellion and he looks down and his act of grace is for him to choose some out of that, that willing rebellion against him and choose some of us out, to choose you and I and pull us out of that mire to give us the gracious gift of salvation. That's why grace is always tied up with this idea of saving us. You see, what are you saved from? You're saved from that rebellion and the judgment of God and the wrath of God that's going to come. He saves you out of that by his gracious act. And it's always tied up also with the idea of mercy. And I heard a definition of grace that I thought was really good. It's that grace is when God gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. That God gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. You see, we deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. We deserve all of those things. But instead of giving us that, he gives us mercy, and he gives us salvation, and he gives us his son. And he, so it's giving us what we needed to bring us out of that instead of what it was that we deserve. And I think that's a great picture, and you'll see as we go along that that over and over is the, is the theme. And as we go on, I just want to ask you this question to kind of keep coming back to are we a people that are like our God in this way? Our God is gracious and gives people what they need instead of what they deserve. And I'm afraid that as, as the church, we've become more a people that want to give people what they deserve. And it's kind of like, it seems like in every family, if you've got multiple kids, there's one that really is all about justice. Right? There's that one kid that's going to make sure that mom and dad always know when something's happened. Because justice needs to be served here. And has just this really strong sense of justice. And that's what I kind of feel like about the church. That we're going around thinking that's our role in this world is to be the instrument of justice. And to always be trying to make sure that people get what they deserve. But at the same time, none of us really want what we deserve. And that as we walk through, I just want to ask, are we really reflecting God the way that we should in this regard? Are we showing to the world what a gracious God looks like, or are we just trying to show what a just God looks like? And so we'll come back to that as we go along. Now let's start the story. The story starts with creation. Now why is creation an act of grace? Because God, before he made anything, he was perfectly content and happy and glorified and satisfied. God didn't have to. He was not obligated to do anything at that point. So for him to create a world at all was a gracious act for him to create something. And then you look at this world that he's made, and even in the, the world that we live in, which is so messed up by sin, it's still an amazing world, isn't it? Aren't there amazing things, amazing things to eat, amazing places to go, amazing things to see, amazing music to hear? God has made this an unbelievable world, and that's an act of grace. He could have made it a miserable world. He didn't have to make it at all in the first place. It was an act of grace for him to make the world at all and then to make humans, to make this unique creature that we are, some of us more unique than others. Um, yeah, myself. Easy. Yeah, careful. 
But we are a unique creation in that God said we are different than everything else that has been made and that we are created in his image and in his likeness. That was an act of grace for him to do that, to create us as special creatures that can actually reflect and show forth aspects of his character that nothing else does. If you just thought, just think of something simple like compassion. We are the only part of creation that can really demonstrate compassion and that God has uniquely and graciously made us to be able to do that. Your emotions, your will, your thought, your creativity, I could go on and on. All of that was graciously given to you by God so that you could make something of it. So from the beginning at the creation, he was gracious. And then at our rebellion, at the fall, if we see the next slide, God was gracious again. That at that moment, God had promised, he said, you shall surely die. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And yet we see grace over and over. He brings the curse and he tells them, look, this is the reality of what's going to happen because of what you've done. But I'm going to show you grace. And here's how I'm going to do it. First of all, I'm going to promise. I'm going to promise that there's coming a time when I'm going to set everything right. When I'm going to fix everything where the birds aren't going to do that on your head anymore. Um, And the world is going to be happy again. It's going to be at peace. Shalom is going to be restored in the world. I promise that I will do that. God didn't have to promise that, right? He didn't have to promise that he was going to fix everything, but he does. And then he gives them animal skins. He takes off their their fig leaves and gives them animal skins and says, I'm going to cover you. I'm giving you a covering. And then an aspect of God's grace is that he's protective. He protects us from things that we may do that would injure us and we don't realize it. So he kicks them out of the garden. You read the end of Genesis 3 and it says he kicks them out of the garden and he puts a special angel there with a flaming sword so they'll never come back. And at first that seems like it's an aspect of judgment, but you read the passage and he says, I'm going to kick them out lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in this fallen state. And see, for some of us, there's been things that God's done in your life that you feel like, oh, I don't know why God took that away or he did this in my life. God may have been protecting you. God's grace is often protective and he does that by removing certain things from you. There may be a relationship that you had that, wow, it just got pulled away in a strange way. God may have been protecting you And understand that this king that we talked about last week is gracious and kind enough to do things that are good for you even if it doesn't seem that way to you. Like as a parent, sometimes we have to do that with our children. They'll they'll want something that they think is going to be great for them, but as a parent, you have to take it away because you know it's going to be harmful for them. And that's the way our God is with us. He's gracious to us. And he was gracious at the fall to kick them out of the garden. It was a gracious act that he did when he kicked them out of the garden. And the next part of the story is we get into Genesis 6. And God looks at this world that is now multiplied and there's people all over the world. And there's this sense that it's just all completely in rebellion. And he has this statement where he says, every thought of their heart was only evil continually. You can't say it much worse than that, right? The very next verse he says, but Noah found favor in God's sight. You see, even in the midst of judgment, as God's saying, I'm going to judge this world, I'm going to wipe it all out, in the midst of judgment, we always see that our God is gracious. And that right after that, but Noah found favor in God's sight. You see that boat? That boat is an act of God's grace. Because if he hadn't told Noah as soon as he had, and he hadn't given him the the specifications for how to build this boat, Noah never would have built the boat. No one would have survived it. And not only would not have Noah but none of the animals. And this world would not be what it is today if God hadn't have graciously preserved it through the flood. 
And so even at the flood, God was incredibly gracious. He gave the ark. He brought in all the animals. God didn't have to bring in all the animals, right? He could have just brought in a few. But instead he said, no, I want to preserve it and I want to keep this world as an act of grace to you. You see Abraham and God taking this man who was living in a a pagan land. He says, I'm going to call you out and I'm going to take you to a new land. He shows his favor to him. He says, I'm I'm instead, I'm going to show special favor to you and your descendants, Abraham, so that the world might see what it's like for me to be king. And then to Moses, if we see the next slide. With Moses in Israel, God showed his grace. You see, he, he took them out of slavery to Egypt. Was God obligated to remove them out of slavery? No, he wasn't. But he graciously, he kind, as a, a kind and loving one who cares for his people, he brings them out and he brought them out into the wilderness. And when Moses was up getting in the picture you see there, when Moses was up getting the law, what were the people of Israel down there doing? Right, they're taking off their jewelry, they're throwing it all in the fire. And Aaron's famous statement, I, it's, to me it's the funniest statement in the Bible. And out popped a, this calf. I don't know, God, just calf popped out and we decided to worship it. Yeah, right, Aaron. At, at the moment that God, it's, at the moment that God is entering into a covenant marriage relationship with them, they're committing adultery. I, I don't want to be too graphic there, but understand that the, the depth of this rebellion is so severe. And God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe this people out. It's just like Genesis 6. I'm going to wipe this people out. And Moses pleads with them and he says, no, please God. Show them grace. And, and notice, and this is where we get met. We, we somehow think, show them grace for their sake. But that's not what Moses said. He says, God, the, the Egyptians know you brought them out. If you wipe them out, your name is going to be defamed. So God, for your sake, show them grace. And every one of us in this room have to understand, that's why God has shown you grace. It's not because you were something. It's not because he needed Josh Walker to come, somehow come and be something for him. He showed me grace in my life for his name's sake, that he might be glorified. And that's why he chooses some of the worst of us. Right? He takes some of the worst people to show. That's why he takes a nation. See, Israel wasn't a great nation. Incredibly rebellious. In the midst of God entering into the relationship with them, they rebel against him, commit adultery in the language that God uses. And so Moses pleads and says, God, will you show grace to them? And he does. And he doesn't wipe them out. In the next chapter, as Moses realizes that he's going to be leading his people, he said, God, if I have found favor in your sight, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your way. Have your presence be among us. He says, I can't lead this people on my own. He cries out for grace. He says, if I have found grace in your sight, please show me more grace. And he uses all that language of favor. And God says something that, becomes throughout scripture the way we understand grace he says to him exodus thirty three nineteen, i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and i will show mercy on whom i will show mercy you see god tells moses you have to understand my grace and my mercy is completely up to me i am the one who decides who i'm going to do this for i am the one that is in complete control of that and then he says and i will show favor on you and on this people Israel. And you see, sometimes when we think of the doctrine of election and of God choosing and predestining, we think, oh, what a horrible thing. You've got to understand that when God says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, I'll be merciful to who I'll be merciful, that we all, every single one of us, has chosen rebellion. 
and that the idea of him grabbing some out is that he saves some of us out of that rebellion that we all have chosen. It shouldn't be something that's bad. We ought to view that as an amazing act of a gracious God coming down to a group of people that are in rebellion against him and snatching some of them out of that judgment. It really ought to encourage us. We should see it as a gracious act of a loving king. The law, the thing, the thing in Moses' hand. If I was to ask you, is the law an act of God's grace? We tend to think of the law as like, oh, what a drag. Right? We tend to think of what it was like to live in Israel and think, oh, what a bummer. Like, all these laws, and I had to do that, and couldn't eat this, and had to wear that, and couldn't work on Sunday. And it's like, oh, man, all these rules that we had to keep. But God says no. The reason he gave the law to his people, he says in Deuteronomy 30, great passage, if you've never read it, read, mark it down, Deuteronomy 30. He says, I have given you this word so that you might have life. And he says, it's not too hard for you to do. It's not way off. It's something that is even near to you that I have given it to you and you can do it so that you might have life. And that's when we talked last week about Jesus being our king and all the things that he calls us to think about and to live out in our lives. It's because he wants you to have true life. And see what Israel did with it is instead of taking the law and he's, and living by it, he says the opposite. If you disobey it, what you're going to lead to is death. And that's true of all sin. That's true of each one of our lives. Is that when, when we try to be king, when we try and do the things that we want, instead of doing his law and what he calls us to, it leads to death. And so some of you last week, when I stepped on some of your toes of different things to think through of the kingship of Jesus, understand that some of those things that you think you should hold on to and that you want to hold on to, they're leading you to death. And that this king is a loving, gracious king that wants to lead you to life. And that's why he gave them the law and they instead lived in rebellion against it. I'm going to read you from Psalm 19. David writes a psalm and as part of it, he talks about the law of God and what it means to him. And I just question whether any of us feel this way about God's commands. Psalm 19, verse 10 and 11, he says, They are more to be desired than gold. Do you ever think about the commands of God? See, he's not just talking about, oh, this wonderful like, relationship and this good feeling I have with God. He talks about the commands, the statutes, the rules of God. He says they are more to be desired than gold. And he goes on, even fine, even much fine gold. How many of us live as if, God's commands are more important than pursuing financial gain. And that would say that with David, where it's just, it doesn't even compare. And then he goes on, he says, sweeter. They are sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That was the sweetest thing they had in that day. He says, that, that's the way I look at the law of God. It's sweet. How many of us look at the law of God? How many of you have read Deuteronomy and thought, oh, that's sweet. Wow, I'd, I'd rather, you know, obey and have those than... Much fine gold. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You see, David understood that the law of God was given for him to have life. And for him to obey and to live according to the way that God laid it out, that when God gave it to Israel, he wanted them to show the world what shalom ought to look like. Right when, when humanity functions the way it's supposed to, this is what it looks like. And he wanted them to do that, and that's why he gave them his law. And that's why he has called us to follow him, is so that people might see, just like with Israel, they might see this is, this is a glimpse of what it's supposed to look like. 
And instead we look at him like, ah, oh, a bunch of rules and, oh, it's a bummer. We can't do these things. And he says, no, those things that you want to do that I tell you not to, they actually lead to death. And they lead to destruction. And that's why I'm calling you to live a different way. With David, what an act of grace for God to take David, a simple shepherd boy. Right? I mean, sh- shepherding in that culture wasn't like the, you know, the zookeeper that takes care of the cute animals. They were bottom rung of society. Takes the shepherd boy and makes him a king. Active, incredible grace. David, after he sins with Bathsheba, has her husband killed. As he's repenting in Psalm 51, the very beginning of Psalm 51, as he records his repentance to God, he says this. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. You see, David, when he was in the midst of his sin, and some of you might be there today, you don't want to cry out to God like, be just to me. Please, God, pour out your justice on me, do we? No, we're like David, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed the prayer that David prayers in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my iniquity. Right? That, that's our heart's cry, isn't it? But the thing I'm concerned about is in the church, somehow we want grace for ourselves and we want justice for everybody else. You see, what, what seems to characterize us If you were to ask people what characterized the Christian church, what is the Christian church all about? Is grace going to be at the top of the list? Or is it going to be things like, no, they're actually kind of hateful and they're mean and all they want is people to be punished. And justice is the thing that we want to demand of everybody else where where we want to receive grace ourselves. And I just want to say that as we look at this kind of gracious God, and that doesn't mean we don't care about justice. Because our God cares about justice. But he cares about grace. And he's a gracious and he's a kind God. And he says those things don't, they aren't in opposition, but they actually work together. But I would just suggest that as a church, not just Cornerstone, but in general, the way people look at Christianity, we don't look like our God this way. Even though we all want it. I'll tell you, I want grace every day. I need grace every day. Desperately. And there's a world out there that desperately needs grace. And we should be the first people to come to them with the grace and the forgiveness of God instead of judgment and pounding on them. We should be like our God. I don't want to get what I deserve. I want to get what I need. You go through the rest of the Old Testament as you just keep going through the kings. The nation of Israel should have been wiped off the planet repeatedly. And so should you. And so should have I. You see, the way that we all have lived, every single one of us, means that we deserve to have been wiped off the planet. But you look at what God did with Israel, and he preserved a remnant of people that still had a heart for him. And he said, I'm not going to wipe them off the planet. He preserves the law. You read this interesting story of Josiah where they find the law again. You're supposed to be the people of God, and you've lost the law? I would look at the church and say that we've done the same thing. We're supposed to be the people of God, and yet we've lost love and grace at times. Like, how, how can we do that? We need to, but God is gracious enough for us, in a sense, to rediscover things that we've forgotten. And with Josiah, he brought the law out, and they repented, and they were willing to obey. God preserves the things that we need in order to be the people of God. And then in the next slide, we see probably the most gracious gift that God ever gave. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That 
you know, we think of the, the Christmas story, we think of, of Jesus being born in a manger, and I don't know you, that we, we really dwell long enough and understand that the eternal God left heaven where he was eternally worshipped in order to become a human being in a rebellious earth. Right? He came to not just live in the, in the perfect earth that he created, but he came to live in the earth that we messed up and to suffer and to die and suffer all the consequences of living in that kind of an earth. And it says that God the Father graciously he gave his son, right? The motivation for that was his love. We know John 3, 16, right? For he so loved the world that he gave his son. And when he sent his son, and, and you understand all the way back, when he made the promise to Abraham, God knew that he was promising to keep prom- promising things to his people that were going to require this kind of cost. Now, how many leaders do we know like that? That's why, like last week as I talked about kingship, it's so hard for us to grasp submitting to this kind of a king. Because can you imagine if um, our president, I'm not picking on Barack, but just Obama, but who, whoever might be president, could you ever imagine them making a promise to you personally that they knew would ultimately cost them the death of their son? We can't imagine a leader like that, can we? Can we imagine one who rules over us that would ever do anything like that? But that's exactly what God did. When he promised to Abraham, he knew that to fulfill that promise was going to cost him his son, to come and to live and to die. And so when we look at the birth of Jesus, next time, you know, Christmas rolls around, just think of what an incredibly gracious gift that he has given to us. He gave us the prince of shalom, the prince of everything, the way things ought to be. In Romans 8.32, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, the implication for Paul of the fact that God gave his son for us is that he will graciously give us all things. Because if he didn't hold that back, why would he hold anything else back? And so if in your life you're feeling like, oh, God's holding back good things from me, understand, God gave you his son, he's not going to hold any good thing back from you. He gave you the best thing possible already. So if he's holding that back from you, it might be like keeping you out of the garden. That may not be what's best for you. And be willing to let him be king over you and tell you not to do that and instead do something that's better. But it wasn't just for Jesus to come as a baby that was the gracious gift. But the next slide, it was at redemption. The greatest display of God's grace is the fact that he has saved all of us out of our sin. That is the greatest act of God's grace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I was tempted to read all of Ephesians to you this morning. But considering I went a few minutes over last week, that's understatement. Um, I'm not going to read all of it to you. I'm just going to read some sections to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is just amazed at God's grace, and he declares it to us. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now stop for a second. From, From our understanding of the story of God, you ought to now, when you read that verse, connect back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. 
that when you read the word blessing three times in one verse, you ought to be thinking about the curse that happened in Genesis 3 because cursing and blessing are the opposite, right? And then Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 where he promised to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing, right? The blessing language ought to trigger for you that whole story. He's saying Jesus is this fulfillment. It's part of what he's connecting it into in the whole story. Um, Even, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. You see, again, we, we think of predestination like this horrible, awful thing that God did. But it says, no, in love he predestined us to what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, that is baffling. Remember the prodigal son? And as he's coming back, he's hoping he might be able to be a servant. But the father brings him back into the family. And that's the amazing thing. This, this world that's in rebellion and is continually, right, every thought of their heart, every intention of the thought of their heart is only evil, continually kind of world, that God takes some out of that world and says, I am going to take you, and I'm not just going to make you my servants, but I'm going to make you my sons. You see, this is the kind of gracious king that we have. This is the kind of gracious and kind father that cares for us enough to say, I'm I'm not just going to make you my servants. He has every right to just make us his servants, right? He's the creator. We're just created beings. He has every right to do with us whatever he pleases. And he says, this is what I please to do. What pleases me is to take some of you, some of the worst of you, and I'm going to show you my kindness by adopting you as my sons. And everything that comes with that. Inheritance and everything that comes with it. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, he is the one that's in control. He's sovereign. What does that do, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace? You you begin to understand the situation we're in and what God has done. And it wants us just to praise how gracious he is. To praise him and just to say, wow, you, you have poured out something that was completely undeserved. I didn't... I deserve to be punished, but instead you've adopted me as your son. And, you know, honestly, I've been struggling this week and I needed God's grace on this because the more I study and the more I understand this, the more I feel completely inadequate and desperate to convey to you in any sort of way that the reality of God's grace and how amazing it is. I feel completely inadequate. And this morning as I'm struggling with God in prayer over that, it was like he just said to me, that's because you need my grace too. You see, he's even taught me through this process that we all need God's grace to do whatever it is he calls us to do. Let's keep going, Ephesians 1. Praise of his glorious grace, verse 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, we, we haven't emphasized this part of the story, but that for him to redeem us, to set us free from our bondage required his blood. That for, for him to save us, It cost him not just coming and dwelling as a man, but being willing to die a death even on a cross, to take the wrath of God upon himself in order to forgive us. And how did he do it? Look there at the end of verse 7. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Man, what an amazing picture. See, God's grace isn't just, he kind of gives us a little bit. Paul's picture there, right? The riches. It's like, just a treasure full of God's grace that he lavishes on us. He pours it out over us. But I'm afraid that last week as we talked about him being king, you somehow didn't picture him that way. 
You didn't picture him as a king who wants to lavish his grace upon you. That even as he calls you to obedience, it was, oh, he's trying to kill my pleasure. Instead of understanding, no, he wants to graciously give you the best thing and the best that you ever can imagine. But instead we see him as, no, he's just trying to kill everything. This is the God that wants to lavish upon us his grace. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, that's, you see how Paul connects the whole story? He goes from the beginning to the end. He went from predestined us before the foundation of the world to this is the way things are going to end. To unite all things in him, things in heaven on earth. See, Paul understands this is the story, and it's a story of God doing amazing things in our life. I'd love to finish reading Ephesians 1, but I want to go to chapter 2 with you. Read Ephesians and just see what God's grace, how it flows all the way through here. Chapter 2, Paul goes back to tell the story again. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, that's, that's the rebellion. Paul paints the rebellion in a pretty strong way. We are all children of wrath. We are all sinning. We are all dead, right? It goes back to Genesis 1 through 3, that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We are all dead in our sin. Paul says that's the way the story starts, but God, right? Verse 4, great transition, but God. Being rich in mercy. Remember, grace is tied with mercy. Him not giving us what we deserve. Because of the great love with which he loved us, just like John 3.16, the motivation for his grace is his love for us, and he demonstrates his love for us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, he doesn't wait for us, even when you're dead. And I don't know where you are, but some of you, may you're still dead in your trespasses and sin, and you know it. You know that you haven't been enlivened by God. And he says, even in that moment, I reach down and I grab you. And that what grace does in your life, you see, some people want to look at grace and say, isn't it grace that, or great that grace is there to forgive me when I sin? But that's not what he says about grace, that it actually makes us alive together with Christ. You see, the grace of God, when it comes into you, when God transforms you, he empowers you now to live this way. Too many of us are, are living depending on grace and just living sinful lives, just saying, oh, well, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. No. His grace comes into your life. And, and Paul, I believe, ties the grace of God right in with the Spirit of God. That I talked to you a couple weeks ago about looking for the Spirit. Is the Spirit alive in you? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is the Spirit alive in me? Because if I'm part of the new covenant, the Spirit's alive in me. The question I'd ask you this week is, do you see grace alive in you? Do you see yourself empowered by the grace of God to actually live in obedience to God? Because that's what it empowers us to do. He doesn't say that he might someday make you alive at the resurrection and, hey, just live your best until you get there. He says, no, what I am calling you to be as my people, I'm going to empower you by my grace. I'm going to fill you with it and empower you to actually live in this. We, we live fatalistic lives where we say, oh, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. It's just what I do. 
No. No. God has enlivened you. He has made you alive. He keeps going. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you miss the with him, with Christ, in him, in him, you're missing one of Paul's main points. You see that in our our union with Christ, I didn't quite want to go to Pentecost yet, but yeah, you can go back to redemption. Um, Sorry, I saw you all looking up there and I got distracted too. Um, That all of what this is, that is happening here, you see it in Ephesians 1, you see it here in Ephesians 2, it's all with Christ, it's in him, that this isn't anything that we have on our own, it's all because of what he's done and in being united with him that any of this happens in our lives. Look, verse 7, Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, the reason God has saved all of us and the reason he is plucking people out in order to redeem them and graciously doing that is because he wants to, in new creation forever, demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace. That right now, the, the amount of grace that you've experienced and you've seen other people experience is only just the beginning, the taste of how incredibly kind our king is. He has so much more blessings to pour out on us, and he's going to spend eternity demonstrating what an amazing, gracious, kind king that he is. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's why he saved us. Because he wants to have a people to lavish himself upon. I, I don't know if you ever thought about that. As, see, God didn't save you so that you might get out of hell. He saved you so he might have you in all of eternity to shower you with his love and then for you to just demonstrate how great he is as he does that. See, I, I don't want you to hear that as he did it because of you. Because when he does that to you, it shows how great he is. Right? He just pours himself out in immeasurable ways. For out throughout eternity is what he is going to do. And then familiar verses for us. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so no one may boast. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now understand this, that grace is never the result of works but it always results in works. I just want to be incredibly clear on that. Grace, because it's a sovereign gift of God, there's nothing you can do to earn it. He gives it. But when he gives it, it always results in a change. Always. Because that's what he wants us to be. He wants us to be a glimpse of new creation. Prepared him in Christ Jesus. That he wants the world... when, When Jesus was here for the 30 years, 33 years, showed a glimpse of new creation and what it looks like. When he left, it wasn't like, oh, okay, so we're done with that. He left us and empowered us by his spirit to continue to show forth to the world what new creation looks like. And that in our relationships with one another, we ought to be demonstrating to the world, this is what things ought to be. This is the way things ought to function. And a key part of that for us is to be a gracious community to one another. Then when I said earlier, you know, what is it that the world thinks of when they look at us? I'm not just saying in the way we treat them. I'm talking about even the way we treat each other. Right? Are we even gracious with the way we treat one another? As as we've been moving towards community, 
I, as one of the leaders here, and I, I would implore you, be gracious to us as your leaders. Right? We, we are doing the best we can to follow where God would have us go. But some of you really are not being very gracious towards us, and it's hard for us. And we, in return, want to be gracious to you as you struggle to understand these things. Because if we can't do that, we're never going to be able to move forward. And the world is going to look at us and say, I don't want to be a part of that. That as things change and as we struggle to understand where God has us, we, we don't just say, you know what, I'm done with you. That is, that's not gracious. We instead show forgiveness and work through things and talk. And, and I just plead with you, be gracious to us as your leaders. We need it. We're sinners, empowered by the grace of God. You see, and we're trying to live that out. And I just plead with you, be gracious to us, be gracious with one another, be gracious with the people around you. I would love if your family began to be known as a family of grace, and then your neighborhood and the other people that you walk with, fellow believers, began to be known as that's, Wow, that group that meets over there or that group that comes and does that, that group is really a community of grace. And that as we do that, that Cornerstone might become known as, well, that's that church that is incredibly gracious with people. And they take people and they walk with them carefully through their sin and and they still care about justice and about holiness, but, man, they are gracious with the way they walk with people. You see, God can empower us by his spirit to live this way. And then at Pentecost, the next slide, one of the gracious gifts that God gave us was the gift of his spirit. He didn't have to empower us with his spirit. He didn't have to do any of these things, but he did. And you see, Paul ties it in. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, Paul saw that all of the work and all the effort, and he says, look, I put out more effort than any of those other guys. But it wasn't me. That's the way that we ought to live this life. That we are working harder than anybody else. And, and, and there's some that just want to say, oh, no, there's grace, so I don't have... No, you work your tail off because God's grace is working through you. Because his spirit has now empowered you and empowered us to live this way. Our lives are now empowered by the spirit of God. To the point where the greeting that the church gave each other, and I hope based on what we talked about today and a couple weeks ago, that when you see that Paul says grace and peace to you, that that now has a little bit more meaning to it. They say in God's favor of a sovereign Lord be upon you his people to the point where peace, that he might make things work the way that they should. You see, Paul was saying, and I, and I say to us as Cornerstone, may grace and peace be upon us. May, may God show his favor to us in such a way that we actually begin to show the way things ought to be. We begin to demonstrate shalom to people. That as the Prince of Peace now lives through us, that we can show this is the way things really ought to look in our relationships with one another as we forgive and are kind, are gracious to one another. That's the way that we ought to look. As we move towards the end, the next slide. Every time we see judgment, we also see grace. That even, you see, if there was no grace, this picture would only have one way on the road. And that's hard for us to grasp, but that's the reality. All of us have gone in rebellion against God. We would all be going down that right-hand side to the lake of fire. 
You, me, every single one of us, but for the grace of God. And it's only the grace of God that when we see judgment, the fact that we get to enter into new creation ought to just stir within us the fact that God has been incredibly gracious to us. And that's why he's kept us out of it. And then at new creation on the last slide, that understand that for eternity, what God is going to do is to lavish his blessings upon this world and upon us as his people that we might glorify and praise him as a result. That... I think we got the last one. Got new creation? Wait for it. Takes a second. There we go. That in that day, God is just going to pour out his blessings, and not just in small ways, but that's what we have to look forward to. He is a gracious God. And the bottom line as we look at this whole story is that we don't deserve anything from God except for his judgment, but he hasn't given us what we deserve. Instead, he's given us what we need. And he's demonstrated... Through everything he did through the Old Testament, everything he did through Christ, everything he's been doing through the church, he's demonstrated over and over, I'm a gracious and I'm a kind God, be like me. I've empowered you to be like me. My spirit, as in Hebrews it says, the spirit of grace has been given to us and for us to now live as people of grace. If we rightly understand grace, there's at least three things I think of that will happen. One is that we'll praise God. That we'll see that and we'll look through that whole thing and we'll just understand, wow, Over and over and over again, we've been rebellious and he's been gracious. That's the story of my life. That's not just the story of scripture. The story of my life is rebellion, 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 where on God's side it was grace, 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 grace. And I am so thankful for that. And now I want to be a person that shows that kind of grace to other people. And it makes me want to praise him. If we rightly understand grace, we will never boast in anything we do. Because there is nothing that you do that wasn't graciously given you by God. There is nothing that you have that wasn't graciously given you by God. And letting the reality of that sink in, and you think through the things we talked about last week with his kingship, he's graciously given you everything. He now as your king is calling you to live a certain way in light of him. And the last thing, and you can read Titus 2, beginning kind of verse 11 going down there. He says that when you rightly understand, if we've truly been saved by the grace of God, it will make us zealous for good works. That we will not just say, okay, I'm fine. But instead, we'll be zealous to do good works. We'll work our tail off like Paul did. And that's the story of God, a gracious and kind king. And for some of you, you may need to get baptized this morning. You may say, I want to be a part of this gracious and kind king's kingdom. And the way you do that, you come, you submit yourself to him, you come in baptism. Some of you may need to pray with someone. You may not know the grace of God. You may have been living your life in rebellion, and you know that. There will be people up here to pray with you. Please come, pray with somebody. But be working this out in your life. The kingship of a gracious and kind king is who we live under. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. It lifts any burden that you may feel to try and follow him on your own strength. Let's pray. God, you are the king of the universe. You are the sovereign one above all things. All things are from you and for you and to you. And I thank you that you have been so good to us, that you have been good in everything that you have done throughout history. You have been gracious and kind to your people. God, each one of us in this room doesn't deserve to be here, doesn't deserve to be even breathing, and yet you have given it to us. Your grace and your kindness far exceeds anything we can imagine. God, teach us to be your people. You are a good and a loving God. Allow us to praise you, Lord. Give us breath 
to praise you, to sing of your worth, to sing of your grace this morning. God, we love you so much. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the incredibly gracious one. Amen.